Amen. Lord, that's our, our prayer. That and We just thank you that we are your children, that we have been adopted into your family, not because of our good works, but because of your great grace. Father, I pray right now as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Lord, and we are desperate for you. Without you, we can do nothing. So we ask that you bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, if you're here tonight and you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, that means you need one. So raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you one. And if you need to take it home, feel free to take it home as a gift if you don't have one at home. Or if you like this one better or whatever, just help yourself. All right? And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Numbers chapter 6. We continue our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament on Wednesday night. It's a blessing to be able to go through God's Word verse-by-verse. We need to be praying. There's a lot of people in our church that are sick. You probably look around and figure that out. It's amazing how many people are getting nailed by that flu. But praise God that we know the great physician. Amen? All right. Well, let's take a look at the Word. And we're going to begin in number six. But just by the way, again, of quick review, we've been looking at just the, the traveling through the wilderness of the children of Israel. We talked about the fact that, that the first four chapters really talk about the organization of the church, the organization of the, of the children of Israel, not the church, but God's people. And then we saw last two weeks ago in chapter 5, that he went from talking about how they were organized to them being purified spiritually. Now we saw that, that they had been delivered from bondage. What was Genesis about? It showed the sin of man. Then in Exodus, we saw them being delivered out of the bondage of the, of the children of Israel, being bond, out of bondage in Egypt. And bondage is a picture, a typology of what? Of sin. And it's a picture of us, how we've been delivered from sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We then saw that they, as they marched through the, the wilderness, after Leviticus, we saw the emphasis being on holiness. We get to Numbers, and we see them being organized as the children of Israel. And we saw as they marched through the camp that there was a specific way that they were to camp. And those of you who are here, when we looked at Numbers chapter 2, we know that as they went through the wilderness, they were encamped in the shape of a what? A cross. So when the Father looked down upon the children of Israel, what he saw was a cross traveling through the wilderness. Now remember that that cross at the center of it was what? What was at the center of the cross? The tabernacle. And what dwelt in the tabernacle? God's glory, his presence. And again, this temporary tabernacle, these temporary dwelling places, marching through the wilderness, headed to the land of promise. And we talked about how that's a clear picture of us. That we live in these temporary tents. We are now encamped in the cross in a sense that through His shed blood we've been born again. As the the Shekinah glory of God dwelt upon the tabernacle, the glory of God dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we're headed to the land of promise. And that's what we've been seeing as we go through numbers, how they're headed in, they're in the wilderness and we see that they began to blow it. And we're going to find out soon in Numbers that they're going to be in disobedience before God. But he gives them order, he gives them direction, and they're going to choose to rebel against him. Now, we saw that that being with him or dwelling with him required that we walk in holiness. Two weeks ago, those of you who were here, we saw how those who, who are in rebellion against God, it breaks fellowship with him. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And the same is true today. We're born again, we're going to heaven, we can't lose our salvation, but we can break fellowship with God by being in rebellion to Him. We can still be His children, still be adopted, still be, as DC Talk would say, heaven bound. But the reality is that when we rebel against Him, God cannot have sin in His presence. And if we, if we refuse to repent, 
we break away from God. Sadly, many today equate God's grace with God's permission to sin. There's too many walking around with no fear of God. They say, hey, if I, I've lived this way this many years and nothing's ever happened to me. It must be okay. So they equate God's grace to God's permission. But the Lord said, be ye holy for I am holy. Have you guys noticed, those of you who come on Sunday, how incredibly the timing is that what are we looking at on Sunday mornings in Acts right now? We're looking at God's grace, right? Remember they came and said, you have to be circumcised to be saved? And they rose up and said, no, you don't. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And here we are in the Old Testament on Wednesday night, and it's looking at the fact that we need to walk in holiness. And some people struggle with that. They think either we must walk in holiness or we're under God's grace. And I want you to know that we're under God's grace, and that's why we should walk in holiness. Amen? We don't do good things so that God will love us. We walk in holiness because God loves us, because we're filled with the Spirit of the living God. And so as we look at Numbers tonight, we're going to see that God's desire is that we walk in holiness before Him. And we're going to see something in a moment called the Nazarite vow. And God's heart, again, is that we walk before Him holy. Now as we saw in chapter 5 that they cleansed the camp, that, that sin separated people from God. Remember they set the lepers out. Leprosy is a picture of outward sin. The sin that's obvious to everyone. If someone was a leper, everybody knew it. But then also, if they had a, an unclean discharge, a flow of blood, they too were set outside of the camp. And those are a picture of the sins that nobody sees. But also, if they touched a dead body, then they were also sent outside the camp. And deadness or corpses are a picture of the world. So whether it, we're contaminated by sin that everybody knows about or sin that nobody sees or because we've been living in, in the world or hanging out with the world, any of those things brought separation and there had to be restoration. We saw that confession brought restoration and right fellowship. And then lastly, if you remember, we saw that, that there was this thing called the sin of jealousy. And I just want to point this out because I think it's so significant. If you guys remember this, that if a, a husband was concerned about his wife's fidelity, he brought his wife out to the tabernacle in front of everyone. Well, you better be sure if you're doing that, right? He brings his wife out in front of everyone, and they took an earthen vessel, and in that earthen vessel, they took water from the laver, holy water, and they poured water into this vessel, this earthen vessel. Then they took dust off of the ground, and the priest put dust into this earthen vessel, and then he took and wrote on a scroll what this woman was accused of, and they scraped it off and put it in the earthen vessel, and then they gave it to her and she drank it. And if you remember that if she was guilty of adultery, that her stomach would swell and her thigh would rot. And we talked about the fact that that earthen vessel is a picture of whom? Who is it? It's Jesus. The water, a representation of the Word. Ephesians chapter 5, washing by the water of the Word of God. Who's the Word? Jesus Christ. The dust of the ground. Jesus was 100% God, but dust is what man was formed from. He's 100% God, he's 100% man, showing both his humanity and his deity. And then the curse was taken and scraped into this water, and who was the one that, who knew no sin, who became sin for us? Again, that's Jesus. The curse of all mankind was placed upon him. And so that's what chapter 5 was all about, and now we come to chapter 6, and we're going to move on and look at what is called the Nazarite vow. Now this is a, a, a vow is a promise. It's a commitment that we make. Today the vows that we think about are our marriage vows, right? And a vow is more than just a promise. It's a commitment before God. It's saying before God, I'm committing to you, Lord, and it's only breakable, you know, by you. I'm, Lord, I'm going to be faithful to this vow, this commitment that I make before you. 
And so we've seen that, that God's given them all this instruction. He's told them you know, how to camp. He's told them to be accountable, to be responsible, to submit to authority. And he's, he's divinely orchestrated everything. But now he's going to work on the hearts of individuals. Because if you'll remember, who are the ones that were called by God to serve as priests? Which tribe was it? The Levites. And remember why? Remember what happened? It was supposed to be the firstborn and Moses comes down from the mountain and they're all partying and drunken and naked and dancing around the idols and they built a golden calf and he comes down and he sees this disaster and he says, all of you who want to serve God, come to me. And every single person of the tribe of Levi came to the Lord. They responded to the call. That's why God used them. And we might look and say, well, you know, they get to be the ones that, cl- that camp closest to the tabernacle. There's the ones that get the greatest blessing and that's true. Those who serve in ministry are the ones that are nearest to God. And same was true with, Le- with the Levites. But I want you to see something tonight. That not everybody else was left out. Because while the Levites had this special calling on their lives, anybody could take what is called the Nazarite vow. And it was a decision that was made by people to say, I want to walk closer to God. Do you know that you're as close to God as you want to be? Let me say that one more time. You are as close to God as you want to be. Amen? If you're, not as close, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? Amen? Who moved? Did God move or did you move? We do. And if we desire to walk in closeness with the Lord, it's up to us. You know, justification is what happens when we're saved. We give our life to the Lord and it's a choice, a response on our part to His reaching out His hand saying, I love you, I died for you, I want to have a relationship with you, and He will not force salvation on anyone. And we respond by faith and we reach out and take salvation. And that's a choice. And when we choose to accept what He's done for us on the cross, we're justified. Remember the acronym for that of the way, remember that it's just as if you've never sinned. So you're justified, you're going to heaven, your sins have been paid for, but after justification, what comes next? Sanctification, being set apart. And what I want to talk to you about tonight is that sanctification, I believe too, is just as much a choice because sanctification is a process. From the time we're justified until we're glorified, we're being sanctified. We're going through the process of becoming more and more like Him. As Christians, I used to say this as a youth pastor, Christianity is like a grease pole. You're either climbing up or sliding down. There's no such thing as a stagnant walk with God. You're either getting closer to Him or you're falling away from Him. And it's all going to be based on how much you pursue Him, how much time you spend in His Word. Are you desperate for Him? Are you in love with Him? And so we're going to see that there's a choice that can be made to sanctify ourselves. And that's what this Nazarite vow was all about in the Old Testament. It was a conscious decision to say before God and before men, I want to be set apart. I I want to give more of my life to you, Lord. And this was a way that they could go about it. So we're going to talk about the vow of separation, then what happens when the vow is defiled, what happens when it's fulfilled, and then lastly, the priestly blessing. Let's begin in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 6, and we're going to look at this vow of separation. Israel's in the wilderness. They're headed on their way to the land of promise. And there's one more reminder to be ready because there are going to be people around you who don't know me and you're going to go into Canaan and you're going to be surrounded by all these people who are ungodly and you need to make a decision to stand with me. Look at verse 1. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. It says, Speak to the children of Israel, either man or woman. God's calling to live a set-apart holy life is not just for the priests. It wasn't just for Aaron and his sons. And it wasn't just for the Levites. It says there, when either a man or a woman speak to the children of Israel and when any man or woman that desires to be set apart to me, that desires to draw closer to me, that desires to make me the priority in their lives. He said, speak to them. Again, not just the Levites and any of that rest of the children can respond. Now the word consecrate there, I've shared this with you before. Who remembers what consecrate means? What does it mean? Set apart to holy use. That's what it means. When you consecrate something, you take something and you set it apart for holy use. You say, this, they would consecrate the things in the temple, for example, or in the tabernacle. And it was set apart that this thing only had one use and it was used solely in a holy way. And so when someone's consecrated, they're saying, take my life and set me apart for holy use. Take me, set me apart for holy use. It says, if anyone desires to consecrate himself and takes a vow of a Nazarite. Now, what is a vow? A vow is a promise to God. And it's not to be taken lightly. Whenever I do a wedding, I spend a lot of time talking about what a vow is because I think we don't fully understand. A vow is not a promise to try real hard until someone better comes along, right? Although a lot of people take their marriage vows that way. A vow is a promise before God. And so it says, anybody desires to take a vow, and it says there, a vow of a Nazarite. Now the word Nazarite comes from a Hebrew word, which means to separate, to set apart, to dedicate. So very much like consecrate means set apart for holy use, the word Nazarite comes from the same kind of word, Nazar, which means to set apart, to dedicate. So if anybody desires to make a promise before God to be consecrated, set apart to holy use, to dedicate their lives to the Lord. And that's really what we're going to see here as we go through this text, that that's what a Nazarite was. A Nazarite was a Jewish man or woman who dedicated themselves wholly to the Lord to fulfill the Nazarite vow of being totally set apart. And what does it mean to be separated? It means separated to the Lord and separated from the world. Separated to the Lord and separated from the world. Those two things really go hand in hand. To be devoted to God and then abstaining from the things that would separate us from Him. It's interesting that in this one chapter, if you have the New King James Version, the word separate or separated is in there 16 times. And you know, too often, it's sad to me, and this breaks my heart, if I can just share my heart with you for a minute. It breaks my heart that too many churches today are trying to see how much we can be like the world. How much, how much like the world can we be? You know, can we just be just like them? Let's model ourselves after IBM and, you know, let's use their model and let's use the model of success and let's be just like the world. But the Lord so clearly said we're not to be like the world. In the world but not of the world. He said, come out and be separate from the world. And you know what? There's a lot of Christians that are happy at salvation. And we should be, but they're happy that that's as far as they want to go. Hey, I'm saved. Got my get out of hell free card. It's in my wallet. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I'm going to heaven. That's great. I'm good. And you know what? May we never be satisfied with that. Amen? Our hearts should be like these Nazarites to wholly be separated unto the Lord. Lord, I want to give you all of me. 
Pastor Don in San Jose, my pastor, when, when I was the youth pastor over there, he used to say, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. And what he meant, he used one example, I surrender all. He said, most people ought to just sing, I surrender some, because that's more accurate. You know, we sing, I surrender all, but, but Lord, you know, don't get in the way of my hobbies and my stuff and my things I like to do. And Lord, you know, I want the get out of hell free card and I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to be too radical. I don't want to be too sold out for you. Nazarite vow was saying, you know what, Lord, I want to give you my all. Lord, I, I want you to be the center. I want you to be the focus. And with a Nazarite vow came several things. Now, each Nazarite had maybe a different goal in mind. And, and they didn't isolate themselves from society, but they were witnesses to the world around them. But they took a vow for a period of time. Now, a Nazarite vow could be for a month. It could be for a year. It could be for 10 years. Or in some cases, it could be for a lifetime. Who knows of somebody that was a Nazarite from birth? Samson. It's also possible that Samuel was, as his life was dedicated to the Lord by, by Hannah. And it's also possible that John the Baptist may have been as well. But we see that for sure Samson was, that even his parents dedicated him to the Lord from birth, taking this Nazarite vow. Now what did it mean to take the Nazarite vow? And what are these three things that they were required to do? How do they apply to us today? Sometimes we look at books written 1,500 years ago, or in this case, three, over 3,000 years ago, and we look at a book and we say, what has this got to do with me? But as we go through the Nazarite vow, we're going to see three attributes, and let's take a look at them one at a time, and they apply to our lives today. So if they want to take a Nazarite vow, they want to be wholly set apart, they want to be consecrated to the Lord, what's the first thing they must do? He says, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. Uh-oh. Pastor Dave's getting in someone's kitchen right now, right? Oh, man, you, oh, come on now. We're living under grace, man. You know, if I want to have a brew after work with my dinner, you know, get off my back, right? And the reality is, that's true. As a Christian, if you want to drink alcohol, you know, you're not to be drunk. That's very clear in God's Word. But I want to tell you this. If God's calling you to lead in ministry, Pastor Dave's opinion, well, you know, I'm God's Word, all right? You shouldn't be drinking alcohol. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Nazarite was not to drink alcohol. Be set apart from it. Let me ask you, any good things come out of drinking alcohol? Can you say, you know, that was just great when I drank that. That was just wonderful. You know, I think the beer commercials ought to show people puking in the gutter the next day. You know, they always show that, you know, the people, you know, and the girls in the bathing suits and the driving the fast cars and all this stuff, and life is wonderful. I remember seeing those commercials when I was a kid, and then when I was a teenager, a friend of mine across the street, I'd never tasted a beer in, his, in my life, and one of my neighbor's dads said, here, taste this, and I, I thought it was going to taste like a Coke or something. You know, it just looked so, and I, I said, oh man, you got a bad one. That stuff's wrong, you know. <laughs> You got poison. Now. Oh, you're tricking me. He goes, no, that's what beer... I go, oh man, I won't have a problem with that. That stuff's rank, right? It's just wrong. And so the Nazarite vow was, don't be drunk. Stay away from alcohol and any similar drink. Now, it says in Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever's led astray by it is not wise. It also says in Proverbs 23, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of the eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look in the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. 
At the last, it bites like a serpent, and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Some of you can testify to that, right? And your heart will utter perverse things. You know what's really funny? It's not really funny, it's sad, but when you're in a room and you're not drinking and everyone else is, how foolish do they look? When I played football in college, they used to give me heat because I would drink milk or half and half because I was trying to gain weight. And, and I was drinking this stuff, and, every, and people would be lit. I shouldn't have been there to begin with. But people would be lit, and I would look at these guys going, I wish I had a video camera because I could blackmail everyone tomorrow. You guys look so... And that's what alcohol does. Alcohol lowers our inhibitions, right? You know, they don't have singles donut shops. They have singles bars, right? Now, why is that? Why is that? I'm going to hook up and get some, have some alcohol, and, you know, and, and, you know and, and what happens is then people, you know, become more outgoing and their inhibitions go down and, well, we know where it leads. It's a disaster. It says in Proverbs 31, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink. So, if you want to be used mightily by God, don't drink alcohol. Ephesians 5 says, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what that tells me? If I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't need alcohol. I don't need it. I don't need it. And again, if you have a glass of wine with dinner and you're not convicted about it, God bless you. Okay? That's, that's between you and the Lord. But it also says in First Timothy chapter 3 that for a pastor's qualification is he is not given to wine. Now do you think that someone's called into ministry and then they quit drinking? Or do you think that's just an attribute of their life before they... I really believe it's something that changes first. It's not like we call someone and say, okay, we really feel like God's calling you to be a pastor here. Now here's a list of rules and things you've got to change in your life. No. You look for someone who's living that way. And it shouldn't be a have to, but it's not like, oh, now i got to, oh, I shouldn't have come Wednesday night. Now I'm a, oh, man. I knew I should have stayed home. Just bought that nice bottle for Christmas, and now what am I going to do? I'm going to be convicted. And here's the reality. The vow to be set apart the vow to make God first. Wine lowers inhibitions. It gives control over to our fleshly desires. I'm not going to have you raise your hands because you might embarrass. Well, we'd all probably have it. Half, three quarters of half. How many of you have ever, don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever drank alcohol and then done something really stupid that you regretted? Okay. Enough said, right? It's amazing how what we do when we drink alcohol, how it does. Not by chance just after the text on adultery, because quite often wine leads to adultery. Wine and alcohol leads down a path that's not good. What about Noah? Wasn't Noah one of those most mighty men of God in the Bible? Noah was the guy that when nobody was serving God, everybody was in rebellion, spent 120 years building a boat when it had never rained before. You want to talk about faith. And he put two termites on a wooden boat. That's faith, right? But I mean, he had incredible faith. He's building the boat for 120 years. People are walking by and going, what's going to, water's going to fall from the sky? Please, right? They're mocking him. They're laughing at him. Total rebellion. But do you know what happened to Noah not long after the flood? What did Noah do? He got drunk. And it says he was laying in his tent and he was uncovered in his tent. This mighty man of God became a train wreck and a mess that evening and was laying there and his reputation was blown and his son saw it. It was bad news. And it brought major consequences to his family. This man who loved God with his whole heart, but he made the mistake of drinking too much alcohol. Alcohol attempts to drown conviction. That's what it does. 
People will say, oh, I just, I don't feel good. You know, I, I'm, I'm missing something. I'll go get, you know, let me go drink a six-pack. I'll feel better. And what it does is, is people are trying to fill up that, that spot that can only be filled by the Holy Spirit. Amen? But, you know, Augustine said that, you know, we all have a God-shaped vacuum. We can try to fill it with money and relationships and alcohol and drugs. But here's the thing, that those who are truly called by God to serve Him, we don't need anything else to to boost us up or to, to, to distract our attentions or to make us feel better. I don't want to be des- desensitized to the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what alcohol does because people will do things after a six-pack that they wouldn't do sober. Isn't that true? Why? Because you turn down the Holy Spirit. You turn down the conviction. So a Nazarite vow was no alcohol. Now watch this just to make sure that there weren't any loopholes. I love how God knows the hearts of men. Look at this. Now watch what it says. I like this. He shall neither drink vinegar made from wine, nor vinegar made from similar drink, nor any grape juice, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. You know what? God knows people. People will make compromises. Well, this isn't really wine. What this is, is some older grapes that I'm using for cooking. Right? You know what I mean? And he says, don't, look, don't eat raisins. Don't eat grapes. Don't eat anything related to a grape. He's taken all the loopholes away because he knows the heart of men. I've heard people say that to me. Well, the Bible says, you know, uh, not to... And, and they'll, they'll take the letter of the law and they'll try to find loopholes so they can tap dance as close to the world as they can and still be saved. Well, the Bible doesn't say I can't do this, so I'm going to do it. But we know God's heart. We know God's desire. We know God's passion, but God makes it really clear here. He knows our tendencies. He says, stay away from the wine. Don't get anywhere near it. Don't compromise. Stay as far away as you possibly can. Those who want to be used by God, be separated unto Him, must have a clear mind, not be impacted by wine, beer, strong drink, drugs, etc. That means marijuana. We live in Santa Cruz. I'm t- if I have one more person tell me, well, God made it. God made it. That grows right out of the ground. Uh, it must be okay. You know what? There's poison ivy in the ground. You just smoke that too. I mean, you know, I mean, it just makes no sense. But people, again, it's a loophole. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that, well, the Bible says sorcery. The word for sorcery is what? Who knows? Pharmakia, which means pharmaceuticals. So that means no drugs. That means be careful with those prescription drugs too. Amen. Well, doctor prescribed it, it must be okay. Well, wait a minute. Does it take you from being focused on God? Does it take away your, you know, your concentration and your focus? I'm very leery when people are prescribed drugs that impact the way they think. Be very careful. Very careful. Be not drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Separate himself from wine and similar drink. Again, the desire to serve God and drinking alcohol don't go together. And you want to live a life set apart to God to serve Him in ministry, stay away from that, which will make you forget the Word, which will quiet the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Tell me it doesn't do that, because it does. Amen? Doesn't it do that? Have a few beers and then try to quote the memory verse from last week. Have a few beers and watch what happens. And so a Nazarite, right off the bat, that was the first thing that they had to do, was they had to make this vow to be sober-minded, to be clear-minded, 
to be set apart to God and to stay away from that which would cause them to forget God's word or would cloud the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Look at the second thing it says to do after verse 4. It says, All the days of separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Again, making it really clear, guys. No loopholes here. Stay away from all of it. Verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he has separated himself. Now, some of you, I know, have taken a Nazarite vow in this church. We got some... I justice? I can. Some of us might got some long hair, and that's okay, all right? If you feel called to do that, God bless you. That's great. But in those days, if you had long hair, you stood out. You know, we see these pictures, and they all, no, they didn't have long hair. And if they grew their hair long, it was very clear to everybody who saw them that they had made a vow of some type, that there's something different about them. The longer they let their hair grow, the more apparent that their vow had been going for a longer and longer period of time. And they would stand out very clearly. So not only were they to have a clear mind and a clear focus and not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit and be focused on God, but they also would just stand up for Him and be identified for Him. Not to be undercover Christians, in a sense. They weren't Christians back then. They were children of Israel. But God's called us not to be undercover. Not to to hide our light under a bushel. It was a public vow to be easily identified before God and identified before men. And as Christians... May we be clearly identified with Christ. Now, I've met people, I've talked to them, and they'll tell me they won't put a Christian fish on their car because they drive too fast. Well, I kind of drive kind of crazy. I cut people off. I don't want to be a bad testimony. Well, let me think. Should you not have a Christian fish, or should you maybe change your driving habits? What do you think? I think it's great. It's more important, now, now, just because you create a Christian fish on your car and you wear a Christian t-shirt and walk around with your Bible in your hand doesn't make you a Christian. And, and you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman has a song called What About the Change? You know, you got, you got every Christian thing of paraphernalia, but your life needs to change. But I'll tell you this, I love wearing Calvary Chapel shirt or wearing Christian stuff. You know what it does? It gives me an opportunity to share my faith, but it also makes me accountable in how I act in front of people. Amen? You walk around with a big shirt that says Jesus on it that big, you know, and some guy cuts you off. Okay. Some guy goes and sneaks in front of me in line at the snack bar, right? At the Little League field, right? You, oh, uh, God bless you. Right? But we should be identified with him and not be ashamed of him. And I encourage you, you know, whatever it takes to stand up for him, it tells the world and reminds us of who we represent. But even more importantly, we should live a life that is sold out for God. We should love people and live godly. Love people and live godly. Love people. Did Jesus love people? Yes. What's the the theme of our church? Preach the word and what? Love the people. That's the six-word focus of ministry. God put in my heart 15 years ago when I started doing youth. And that's what we ought to do is love people and live godly. And be identified with Him. And don't be ashamed of being a Christian. Hey, I'll tell you what's a great time to be able to witness is right now. Christmas time. Amen? You guys all know the story of the candy cane. I don't have time to go through it, but you know a candy cane was made by a Christian, right? And you know that you know, it was for a J for Jesus, and upside down it's the shepherd's crook, and it was made of a hard white candy, which is representation that Jesus is the rock upon which we stand, the fact that it's white, that he is holy, and, and then it's got three red stripes that represent the, by his stripes we are healed, that he was beaten for us, and the thick red stripe is a representation that through his blood, through his shed blood on the cross, we have been forgiven. It was a Christian guy that made the candy cane. There's a witnessing opportunity, amen? 
Take a bunch of candy canes to work. Hand them all out. And I guarantee you, I've never had a fail. Hey, do you know what, do you know what those came from? Do you know how the candy cane originated? I've never had anybody say, do you want to know? They always go, yeah. No one's ever said no. Guess what? You just gave me permission to share the gospel with you. Right? And I've done that where I've had a guy who I know, and they, they sit there and listen. Oh, really? I, well, I didn't know that. Great time to share your faith. Don't be an undercover Christian. Amen? We need to be glowing in the dark for Jesus, not hiding from the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So one, separated from the wine, clearly minded, focused on God. They let their hair grow long to be identifiable before the world that they had taken a vow before God and that they would let their light shine. Look at verses 6 and 7. So they should let the, hair, their, their, the locks of their hair grow long. And this is all the days that he separates himself to the Lord. He shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. So, stay away from the wine. Be sober-minded, focused on God. Let your hair grow long. Be identifiable to the world that you belong to him and you've made a vow to God. And then thirdly, don't go near a dead body. Now we just talked about this. What is a dead body representation of? What's the representation of? The world. Right? The Bible says that those who don't know Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. And we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to love the world, of the people of the world. Not, we're not to love the world itself. But we're to love people and minister to them and never be self-righteous and holier than thou. But we're, not, we're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And we're not to touch dead bodies. This means they were not to go near a dead body. They were not to attend a funeral. And any Israelite who did, whether they had taken the Nazarite vow or not, had seven days of uncleanness. When they came near a dead body or touched a dead body or went to a funeral, for seven days they could not go into the tabernacle. They couldn't fellowship. They couldn't worship. What does that tell us? When we are focused on the world, what happens? We lose fellowship with God. When we're chasing after the things of this world, we take our eyes off the, off the king. And that's what it's all about. It's saying, you know, you, you touch a dead body, that's what would happen. So a Nazarite, if he went near a dead body, then he would break his vow before God. And so I wrote down here, don't hang out where the corpses are. Where are the corpses? You know, it's funny, a lot of the same places where the wine is, right? But... You know, don't, don't dance with the, you know, the dead people and, you know, don't watch the, the stuff on TV that's got dead people in it and, and, you know, where the corpses are carousing and the dead people are dancing and, you know, after work, who are you hanging out with? And you might say, well, my mom and dad are into it. You know, my mom and dad, you know, they want me to go and we're going to go to the, you know, or my brother, man, he's into it. And I, you know, I just want to be able to relate to him. And then, by the way, there's something going around the church today, blasphemy. Here's what it is. Going around the church today. We need to be just like the world so we can witness to them. How many of you have heard that before? So if your friends are into going to strip clubs, go with them. Uh, no. Uh, nice try. That would be a loophole, right? Well, if your friends are into drinking, go out, go out and have some beers with them. Then you can look them in the eye and go, yeah, man, we're just like each other. Hey, you know what? Were they attracted to Jesus because he was just like them? No, because he was different. And what they're going to see in us is Jesus in us. Not that we're like the world. Hey, I don't need drugs. I don't need alcohol. I got the creator of the universe. Why do I need that garbage? 
And I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to do this so I can relate to you. I'm going to love you and I'm going to minister to you and I'm going to share with you the truth of God's word. And don't fall into the trap of trying to be like the world because compromise never will lead others to Christ. Compromise does not give us an opportunity for a testimony. It blows our testimony. Amen? And too often, I mean, it, it grieves me. I'm, I'm, I get stuff in the mail and I'm reading it going, what is this? Pa- you know, if you're a pastor, you get all this stuff. And, you know, and, I'll, and I'm reading this thing going, you've got to be kidding me. That, show me that example in the Bible. Show me, was that what the apostles did? Is that what the first century church? No way. But yet we think we've got to be like the world. Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. A lot of people struggle with that. Let me tell you what that means. If your love for God doesn't make your love for everyone else in comparison almost like hate, then you don't love God enough. Don't compromise your walk for the sake of family. If anything, especially dads and husbands in here, God's called you to be the spiritual leader in your home. Amen? He's called you to be a spiritual leader in your home. It's very easy to to abdicate that. It's very easy to let that slide. You need to stand up for God. And sometimes you won't be popular with your wife and your kids when you do. Isn't that true? Sometimes my kids aren't happy with that. And I told my kids when they got old enough, I said, "I'm, I'm willing to let you be mad at me for the next five or six years. It's okay. I love you enough to say, no, you can't date. No, you can't go to parties. No, you can't do that. I love you, and I'm your dad. Well, if I was in that family, well, you're not. So here's the program, okay? And your dad loves you, and I know what's best for you. And so we're not to, to, we need to love God to the point where we're not going to compromise for the sake of our family. Love for others, hatred in comparison of our love for God. It's interesting, when I was in India just a month or two ago, whenever it was now, I met a young woman by the name of Chandra, and this girl was 18 years old, and she had been a Christian for about six months. And if you know, in India, when a Hindu becomes a Christian, their family is not happy at all. She had brothers who found out that she was in this Bible college training for ministry, and they wanted to come kidnap her and take her home. And so... While she was in this training, her dad died. And she knew, she loved her dad very, very much. It broke her heart. She was weeping. But she knew if she went home, that her brothers would never, ever let her come back to Gospel for Asia and study for the ministry. So she had a choice to make. And do you know what this girl who'd been saved six months told her brothers when they came? She said, let the dead bury the dead. Isn't that what Jesus said? Remember the one said, I want to go back and bury my father, then I'll come and follow you? And she said, let the dead bury the dead. You know, may we, again, I'm not saying be flip about family. We should love our families. But we should never love our families more than we love God. Amen? God must be first. And you know what? The best thing I can do for my wife is love God. Best thing I can do for my kids is love God. Be in love with Him because then I'm going to be the greatest husband in the world if I'm sold out for Christ because then I'll have supernatural, spirit-filled love for my wife and I'll lay down my life for her and I will serve her. But if I put her first, it's the worst thing I can do for her. So, the Nazarite vow, separated from the wine, focused on the Lord, sober-minded. Hair grown long, identified with Christ. Separated from dead bodies, no fellowship with the world. Now, look what it says here. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. 
So what's he doing in this separation? Why is he doing this? To be single-minded on God. To have his heart on, focused on God. To have it be revealed in his actions. Hey, if you're here tonight and you're single, can I encourage you with something? Don't view being single as a, as a curse. Paul said it'd be better if you remain as I do, didn't he? Didn't he say that? Now, I'm not saying if you're married, it's wrong, because it's not. If God's giving you a desire to be married and you're married, that's great. But I believe that when we're single, we can be more single-minded toward God than anybody on the planet. Why? Because we don't have a husband or a wife that divides our, our time and our focus. And so often people think, well, I'm single, I'm cursed. No, you're not. You have a greater opportunity to totally serve God. He said, be single-minded, be single in focus, single in purpose. Now, what happens if they break the vow? Look at verse 9. If anyone dies very suddenly beside him and defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. So, what happens if they break the vow? You might be sitting here tonight saying, well, you know, I drink, I party, I, I denied my faith, I kind of live undercover I, you know, I'm pretty tied into the world. I'm dancing with the dead people, you know. What do I do? What happens when they're defiled? What should we do if we've blown it? Well, what is it that transforms us? What is it that cleanses us? What was it that renewed the vow for them? We see that the fellowship with the world resulted in broken fellowship with God. Because it says, even if they accidentally touched a dead body, if, somebody was, if they were standing talking to a guy and he died, how you doing, Fred? Hey, what's going on? Hey, yeah, what? And the guy died and, and leaned on him. Oh, no! Right? Oh, you're unclean. Vow's over. Shave your head. Start over. Right? Now, again, I believe this is because God knows man. Right? You know they'd be touching a dead body. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know. I, you know I, we'd be giving up, coming up with some excuses, right? So God made it real clear. If you touch him on accident, you know, if you're drinking, if you're eating grapes and you're trying to say it's, you know, just grape juice, he's just making it really clear that if you touch a dead body, you've been defiled. And that means that there must be restoration. There must be repentance. There must be cleansing. Because sin separates us from God. Touching dead bodies or hanging out with the world or being focused on the world breaks our fellowship with God. So what must they do? It says, Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves of two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So sin defiles us, so what must come to cleanse us? They had to shave their head. So let's say you've, been, you've had a five-year vow. You know, and my hair would be about as long as it is now. But if you had a five-year vow, and you got, you know, you get have hair down to here, and, you know, and you touch a dead body, you've got to shave your head and start over. Right? That's what the text says. But not only do you need to shave your head, which is an act of repentance, what else must happen? Repent, is repentance enough? There must be sacrifice, right? The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no what? Remission of sin. There must be shedding of blood for there to be forgiveness of sin. Otherwise, we could repent to Buddha or, you know, 12-step doorknob or whatever your higher power is. or You know what I mean? People could pick any God they wanted, but there must be shedding of blood for remission of sin, and there must be shedding of holy, perfect, righteous blood to restore sinful man back to holy God. That's why only Jesus Christ could pay the price. It says, So they should bring two turtle doves and two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. He shall sanctify his head the same day. So touching a dead body was what? It was a what? It was a sin. It says he sinned. 
When he went and hung out with the world, when he went and defiled himself with a dead body, he sinned. And too often we think, well, no, it's not sin just to, you know, be in the world. Yes, it is. Because he told us to be separate, to be set apart. What does saint mean? Right? Sanctified one, one who's set apart unto the Lord. And it would require sacrifice. So the sin offering for sin and the burnt offering, and I could go into the details in the offerings. You can grab the tapes from Exodus, and I go into very clear detail on each one of them. But a burnt offering was a total sacrifice unto God. They burnt the entire thing, right? And a sin offering, we'll talk about in a moment because we're going to see it again, had a little bit different picture. Then it says there in verse 12, He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering, but the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So he has to bring a lamb. Why a lamb? Who's the lamb of God? Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. But I want you to see something here. But the former days shall be what? What does it say in verse 12? Lost. Do you know that when we take time to go dabble in the world, that those days are lost? Now, the Bible says that God can re, you know, restore the days that the locusts have eaten, but I believe that we miss out on the opportunities for ministry when we're dabbling in the world. And sin, God will forgive us, but sin has consequences. And we walk away from Him and we rebel from Him, we lose time in being able to minister for Him. Now, what if they fulfill the vow? Then what? What happens if they, they make it? Let's say he makes a five-year vow and says, I want to do five. Lord, I'm committing to you for the next five years. I want to be a Nazarite, and I want to be set apart to you, Lord. And he makes it through the five years. Then what happens? Look at 13 through 21. Now, this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. What is this telling us? Let me tell you what it's telling us. Even though this guy spent 20 years fulfilling his vow before God, it still is not enough to save him. Amen? He can't be saved by his good works. No vow will save you. Being good enough can't save you. Striving hard, doing good things, walking, you know, your walk can't save you. There still must be the shedding of blood for remission of sin. So when the vow's been completed, what has to happen? Sacrifice. Why? To remind him that it wasn't his vow that saved him. It wasn't his good works that saved him. It wasn't his effort and trying really hard. And they brought a burnt offering again, burnt completely. Now what is a sin offering a type of? Again, real quickly, it's a picture of what? Where did they burn it? Burn on which altar? Who remembers this from Exodus? Extra, extra credit questions from a year ago. Which altar? The bronze or brass altar, which is the altar of judgment. Remember that? Okay? The bronze or brass altar. Remember that the size of it was perfect that a man could lay down on it. Remember that? It had four horns on it. They would take the animal and they would tie it to the four horns, right? The four points of the cross. There was, it was tied down and there was blood was sprinkled on all four horns, just as Jesus bled from both of his hands, his feet, and the top of his head, right? A picture of the death of Christ upon the cross. Then they would take and they would sacrifice the, uh, the animal there, but then what did they do with the fat? They burned the fat to the Lord. You remember that? The fat is the, the best part and it was a sweet-smelling aroma, but then what did they do with the carcass? The flesh of the flesh. They took it outside the city gates. You remember this? And they... 
burned it outside of the city, and they let all the blood pour at the bottom of the altar. When Jesus hung on the cross, where did the blood pour? At the bottom of the altar. And the cross, while it was a curse, it was also a sweet-smelling aroma in the presence of the Father because it paid for our sins. Amen? And isn't it interesting that he took the carcass outside of the east gate in Jerusalem, and guess where Jesus was crucified? Golgotha. Guess where it is? It's right outside that gate. So when they were taking the carcass out and burning it out there and destroying it out there, it was being destroyed right in the place where Jesus would be crucified 1,500 years later. Does anything happen by chance in God's Word? No way. And so it's a picture, that sin offering is a picture clearly of the cross. A peace offering was an offering of thankfulness before God and it was shared between the one who offered it and the priest. Verse 15. A basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, their grain offering, and their drink offering. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer a ram as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread, and the priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Remember the meal and drink offerings? We covered this again when we looked at them, but real quickly, unleavened bread. Unleavened. What is leaven a picture of? Sin. Unleavened is sinless. Who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. Unleavened bread. Who's without sin? The bread of life. Who's that a picture of? It's Jesus Christ. What about this fine flour? Remember we talked about how do they make flour, flour fine? What do they do to it? They sift it and they beat it. Right? Just as our Savior was beaten for us. And then they mixed it with oil. Oil being a representation of what? Holy Spirit. So again, these drink offerings and the, each offering, all of them were pointing to the one who would fulfill them later, all a picture of our Savior. Verse 18, Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on, on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So he would shave his head when he was done, he would do it publicly, and he would make it a special offering before the Lord. So he could either shave his head in shame because he had blown it, or he was shaving his head as an offering unto the Lord. He was shaving his head to say that he had fulfilled his vow before God. Verse 19. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram and one, of the, one unleavened cake from the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering after the Nazarite. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So the offering was waved before the Lord. Remember I told you a wave offering, they kind of held it up before God. It was symbolizing that it belonged to the Lord. But then the wave offering was eaten by the priest in most cases. But in this case, it was shared by the priest and the person who had taken the Nazarite vow. It was like a celebration of the fulfillment of their vow before God. And so they would eat it together. Again, after being offered first before God. And now he was free to drink wine because he was free from his vow. Somebody's out there going, see, he could drink wine again. Right? Between you and the Lord, okay? Verse 21. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separations. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of separation. Before they took the vow, they had to count a lot of costs, didn't they? They had to count the cost of being separate, and then they had to count the cost that when the vow was fulfilled, that they were going to have to bring offerings to the Lord. 
And not only the required offerings, but it says here, free will offerings as well. Of the stuff you have left, bring some of it and give it to God to prove that you still desire to serve Him and you still desire to make Him first. Now I want to make something clear. Nobody is saved by keeping a vow. You don't get saved by trying really hard. Salvation is a gift of God to those who believe, not a reward for those who behave. Let me say that again. Salvation is a gift of God to those who believe, not a reward for those who behave. If it was something you earned, it would be a paycheck and not a gift. Amen? So it's a gift of God. So keeping of these vows did not earn salvation. There's some today who make a vow before God, in a sense, or a promise before God. And when they make one, it's not to get something from Him, but to give something to Him. Now, in the New Testament, you don't see a lot of vows being made. But I think of it more along the lines of Holy Spirit conviction. That the Holy Spirit convicts me to do something, because the Spirit lives inside of me. And now I say, Lord, I'm going to obey that. Lord... It's not even necessarily in the Word. Does the Bible say, you know, thou shalt get up early and, and do the dishes your wife doesn't have to? No. Right? I mean, does the Bible tell you that, you know, there's certain things that aren't in God's Word, but the Holy Spirit will convict you? Right? It's, a, it's even above the Word, what we see in the Word. And God will convict us to do it. And you know what? That's when we say, you know what, Lord? You're convicting me. I'm going to obey that. In a sense, that's taking a vow, maybe a different word, but it's being obedient to the Lord and the conviction that He places on your heart. As long as the people make those, have convictions, they don't conflict with the Word of God, God can use them in their life. They can only be achieved by God's grace. We don't make vows and try real hard and it proves how holy we are, because without Him we can do what? Nothing. A few more minutes here, let me finish the chapter. It says, and the Lord, now watch this, I love this, this blessing. Watch this blessing, this is great. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel, say to them. Now, much like the model prayer, this is a model for blessing. They've, they're living holy and set apart lives and now God wants to bless them. And watch the Lord instructing them, here's how I want you to bless my children. I want you to see something here, I won't take too long at this, but look at this really clear. Notice that in verses 24 through 26, it says the Lord how many times? Three times. Do you know the word there is Jehovah every time? Do you know there's a little bit different accent put on Jehovah in each one of those? I believe this is the picture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. Jehovah bless you and keep you. Who has blessed us? the Father. The Bible says He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Had He blessed the children of Israel, He had called them out of bondage. He had rescued them from their bondage. He gave them His holy word. He dwelt in their sanctuary. He dwelled with them. He had given them the land of promise. He had promised, he'd give, He was going to give them the promise of the coming Messiah. Has He blessed us? Ephesians 1 says He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It says, may He bless you and keep you the Bible says that we are where? Where do we reside? We reside in His hand, right? Doesn't it say that? And nobody can what? Nobody can snatch us out of His hand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Who blesses us? God the Father. Who keeps us? He does. Now all of our blessings are in Christ, but they're given to us by the Father. Look at verse 25. Now it says, The Lord make His face to shine upon you, and be gracious to you. 
Who is the one that blesses us with grace, the grace of redemption? What does grace stand for? God's riches at what? At Christ's expense. I believe it's a picture of the Son. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Who's the one that, that gives us grace? Who's the one that, that redeems us, that pays the price for us that we can enter into heaven? And lastly, verse 26, the Lord lift, us, lift up His countenance upon you and give you what? Peace. The Spirit blesses us. He assures us of our salvation. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're saved? Who came to live inside of you? Holy Spirit. Down payment on heaven, right? Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. It, he seals you. It's like stamping you. This one's mine. He belongs to me. But look what it says there. It says, the Lord lift up His countenance. I love the fact that the word there is upon you. What did the Holy Spirit do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He came what? Upon them. You shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit is what? Come what? Upon you. And then look what it says. And give you peace. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, and what? Peace. Where do we get peace? The Holy Spirit living inside of us. We cannot have peace if we don't know the Prince of Peace, but when we give our lives to the Father through the shed blood of the Son, then He gives us the Spirit to come and live inside of us. Verse 27, So they shall put My name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. You know what? The children of Israel will be identified by the name of God. And you know what? As what are we called today? What are we called? Christians. Whose name is on us? Christ. And what a blessing to be known by His name. May we live like it. So in closing, may we live lives set apart to God, separated to the Lord, separated from the world. May we be clear of mind, not impacted by wine or drugs or, or anything else. May we be identified with Christ. You know, Lord, I want to be identified with you. I want everybody to know that I'm your son. And may we have no fellowship with the world, minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it, resting in his blessings that we have in our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that these, this Nazarite vow applies to us today. Lord, that we can just purpose in our hearts to have a deeper walk with you. Lord, we know we can't do it in our own ability. Lord, we know it's only by the power of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, when your Spirit draws us, we can respond in obedience. And we can respond by faith. Your Word says if we ask for your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us, that you will, you will pour out your Spirit upon us. May we cry out for that. May we desire that there be less of us and more of you. And may we pursue you passionately. Lord, we know that we're as close to you as we want to be. May we desire to know you more and love you in a deeper way. So Lord, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.